Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, come on up, find a seat. All right, so I have Eliza here. Now, Eliza, I heard that you recently bought a new house, right? Okay. Now, what did you do after you bought the house? Did you move in? Yeah, move all your stuff in? And are you living in that house right now? Yeah, okay. That's good. Um, Now, I want to clarify just a little bit here. Did you, Eliza, buy the house? Did you sign the paperwork, hand over a whole bunch of money? Did Did you do that? You didn't do that. Who actually did that? Your parents, right? Mom, dad did, right? Now, when mom and dad did that, were you included in that? I mean, did they let you move into the house with them and bring you along with them, or did they leave you out in the cold on your own? They brought you in? Okay. Maybe left Cooper out in the cold by himself? That, that would make sense, but no? Okay. All right. But they let you in. You were included in the, the purchase of that house, right? Yeah, good. Thanks. You can have a seat. All right. So that is similar to what happens to us in a spiritual way, all right? So in today's passage, we're going to read, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, when Paul wrote that, he was crucified with Christ. What is crucifixion? That's when they nailed Jesus to the cross, right, and left him up there to die. That's crucifixion, right? So Paul says that he was crucified with Christ. Do you think he means that he was actually, like his physical body was nailed to the cross with Jesus? That's not what he means, right? But he means in a spiritual way, he was crucified. He was there with Jesus, right? He was included in that and he benefited from that, just like Eliza was included in the purchase of the house and her the benefit of that. And so that's true of all of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. We were with, were united with Jesus, even in his crucifixion, even in his death and his resurrection. So we're united with him. We get the benefit of his death, and that benefit is to forgive us of our sin, right? And so because of his death, because we were united with him, died with him, our sin is forgiven, right? And then we have the benefit of his resurrection too. We were united. We were together with him as he became alive again and rose from the grave. And so we now too have the benefit of eternal life because we are united with Christ. And so we are one with him. Just like Eliza was together with her parents, she was united with them when they bought the house and moved in. And right, she benefits from that. It's similar to how we are with Christ. We are with Christ in his death and resurrection and have all the benefit that comes along with that. But it comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, right? And so now because of that, because we are united with Christ, we die with him, we now live with Christ, now we live our lives for Christ and for his glory. And so that's how we live as a result of all that Christ has done for us. All right, thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. All right, thank you, Pastor Jeff. Let's turn to the book of Galatians. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you, and they are, uh, you know, meant in case you forget yours or if you're a guest and maybe aren't used to bringing your own Bible yet. 
They're not there um, to keep you from bringing your Bible. You should bring your own Bible. And if you don't have one, take the one that's in the seat under, or in the seat in front of you under there. But uh, I want to encourage you to bring your own. We are in uh, Galatians chapter 2, where we're looking at verses 20 and 21. I think the way to get into this is to look at Romans 8 first, and then Psalm 13, just to kind of set the stage for what we're going to see here. Acts 20.20 is one of those verses in the Bible that you've heard many times. It's a go-to uh, well-tread Christian verse, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I live, but Christ who lives, right? We, we go there, it's a, but what's it about? What's it for? That's what we want to look at. In Romans 8, we see, let's say beginning at verse 12, this kind of difficulty that we live in. We have this war between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 15, we're told, taught that we didn't receive the spirit of God to fall back into fear that is back into the fear that will be condemned along with the world, but we've been adopted as sons. And that that spirit is bearing witness within us who we are. In verse 18, that's all in the context of the sufferings that you go through in this world. And this suffering causes us to groan inwardly. Look at verse 22. The whole creation's groaning, and then us in verse 23. We're groaning inwardly. Verse 26, we have great weakness. So you have this reality that we have adoption as sons. We have God's Spirit within us. We are being renewed inwardly day by day, looking forward to the day of seeing Jesus, and yet now we groan. And so it's great difficulty we live in. Our bodies are wasting away. Not even dealing necessarily with our own sin. Just, we're dying. If you turn to Psalm 13, our text, Galatians 2.20, is supposed to be read in light of Romans 8, in light of the plea, the cry, the scream of agony in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? But in the middle of that, verse 5, I trust in your Steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Isn't that our life? How long? And yet, I'll sing. (laughs) Christians are nuts. That's the reality we're seeing in Galatians 2.20. I just, you know, part of the difficulty with a verse like this is we're so familiar with it that we're familiar with it. It doesn't mean what it means. And so we have to kind of be shocked. And I, like, Christianity, our faith, is absolutely useless if it's not lived. 
that's not real. And so I want Galatians 2.20 to be lived, to be real. And the context is the life I now live in the flesh, in the groaning, in the how long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever from me? That's what it's for. It's not for proud people. This will be of no help to you if you don't need any help. And the reason you don't think you need any help is because you're just so proud. It's not because you're good and right and all is well. It's just you're proud. And so let's have faith for this. I'm going to read uh, 2, 15 to 21, but we'll be looking at 20 and 21. So this is Galatians 2, 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. O law-giving God who is utterly righteous, your law is good, but in the weakness of our flesh, sold under sin. Please come, teach us now in your great patience how to live here by faith in your Son. May you keep us from despair. May you keep us from the illusion that all is well. But learn to live truly in the comfort and joy that you've provided here in these verses. And so please teach us to have the faith to admit our wretchedness and to believe that your grace in your Son, has utterly freed us to live without any condemnation whatsoever in this life now, in all of our groaning. Amen. All right, let's, um, verse 20, that first line, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't know if I said this last week, but in the original, it's actually connected to verse 19. And so let's just review what happened in last week's sermon. Remember, and Paul is dealing with the reality of our inclination to depend on our acceptance with God based on ourselves and not on Christ. That is, we do trust in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus the kind of coffee I drink. Because I drink Colombian, you know, no slave labor, non-GMO, whatever all that means. And that's more righteous than those of you who drink Hills Brothers. And so my coffee choice shows how stupendously righteous I am compared to the rest of you pork and beaners. That's how silly we are. We're so prone to self-righteousness. So Paul's combating that. 
And the enemies in verse 17 are raising an objection, charging Paul with blasphemy. Because Paul teaching that it's all free grace. It's so radically free that it, it blows the mind. And what they're saying is, this radical freedom of God's grace is saying to people, you can do whatever you want as far as sin. They're, they're saying that Paul, in his teaching of justification by grace alone, is making as if Jesus is winking at your sin and it's okay. Christ is really a minister of sin. He's saying you can sin all the more because God is all the more gracious. And Paul's answer is just simply, Don't. no, certainly not. In verse 18, if I were to return to the law as I once did, it, it would only prove that I'm the transgressor. It wouldn't prove that free grace is wrong. And then verse 19 is one of the most radically wonderful underappreciated verses in all the Bible. For through this law of grace, through this law of God pardoning my sin without anything about me, all about Jesus, through that greater law, I am dead to God's commands. I am dead to the Ten Commandments. I, they have nothing to do with my acceptance to God. And so I'm alive to God. It's just stupendous. It's, it's not common sense at all. It's totally opposite of everything that we would think is true. And so the question then is, I, I died a law that I might live to Christ. How? Well, having been crucified with Christ. It goes right into verse 20. So it would be better to read it like, through the law I died a law so that I might live to God having been crucified with Christ. This all took place because I am one with Jesus, I'm united to Jesus, he's the vine, I'm the branches. He's the building, I'm just a part in it. He's the body, I'm just a member of it. By my connection with Jesus, when he was crucified, I was crucified. The law is nothing, I'm accepted to God. But how do I live it? Because there's this tension in my life. I, it's, it's like I don't live anymore. Christ is my life. And yet I still live in this body. I still live in this world. I still live in this misery. I still live in this brain. I still live with these temptations. I still live with this heart disease. I still live with this bum knee. I still live with this bum spouse. I still live with this job. I, so it's no longer I who live. Christ lives within me. I'm in heaven and yet I'm on earth. How do you do that? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what's going on here. So this verse is meant to be very reassuring to Christians. It is not reassuring to non-Christians. It's only reassuring to people who have actual faith in Jesus. So wake up, Christian. Here's your meat. Here's your medicine. Here's your rest. This is why this verse is so precious to us. Because we all see and feel the comfort in it. So let me, that's what's going on here. It's, it's really wonderful, but let me, let me do this. I mentioned 
we as pastors are reading through this book, Reformed Pastor, and the last section that we discussed, read, it kind of is exhorting pastors and elders to pay careful attention to the sheep, and it kind of categorizes the sheep into different groups. And one group are, let me just read it, there are many of our flock that are weak who, though they are of long standing, that is, they've been in the church, they've confessed Jesus for a long time, are yet of small proficiency or strength. And he says, this indeed is the most common condition of the godly. Most of them content themselves with low degrees of grace. And it is no matter, easy matter to get them higher. So they're Christians. They do love Jesus. But the, the most common condition, the, the greatest percentage of Christians here at Pine Grove are those who are just okay with kind of being where they're at. I, I got two illustrations for that. I referee basketball, and last Friday I refed with two guys who are really good officials. They work really hard at it. Before games, when I ref with them, we talk in great detail of situations in the game and what we might see and how we would deal with it. They watch tape from the games that they've officiated to check out plays and make sure they got it right, and if not, what they could do better next time. They go to camps to get better. They're not content. They're excellent refs already, but they're not content. And then sometimes I get to ref with guys who say things like, I've been doing this for 30 years, and don't worry about this, don't worry about that. I'm just going to, you know, they're just paltry. And you know it's not going to be a good game. They're not careful. They're, they're very content with where they're at, and they've been like that for a long time. Which one should we be? Again, this morning, I told you about this book. It's a book that has the elder minutes from elder meetings in the time of the Reformation. So some guy during the elder meetings was taking minutes of what was happening. <laughs> it's wonderful. And uh, one, they, they always had people from the church in their elder meetings to help them if they were in trouble, to deal with them if they're in sin, and, and so on. And one guy was Robert the Pack Saddler. So apparently he made packs that were attached to saddles. That was his job. So like Dave Frank's kind of leather guy, that's what he did. And apparently he was told by the elders previously to attend services on a Thursday and then to come back and report to the elders what good it did his soul. But he didn't go to church on Thursday. Uh, and then when he did finally go, they asked him what he heard, and he answers that he did attend, but he, could, he couldn't remember who preached or what was preached, basically. <laughs> this is what he says. He, he says he listened last Sunday. He heard the sermon at St. Peter, so he remembered where he was, but he didn't remember who preached or what he said. And then kind of he remembered that he preached on the commandments and the consistory 
the elders remanded him to present himself every Thursday from now on to come to the elder meeting until Easter. And after Easter, until he is fully instructed in the fear of God, to give an account for how he has profited day by day. Otherwise, the elders will not be content with him. They're admonishing him to be careful for his soul. To not be content with the little grace he has. To go to church and be very careful to hear well and to day by day be careful for how he's profiting and then come back to the elders and give them a report of it. And so where, where are you at in that? We have this incredible grace from God. We have this treasure of Christ's keeping of the law, his death under the law, and that becoming your complete, utter acceptance with God such that God does not at all condemn you ever for any sin. You're totally free. But are, are you content with just a little? Or maybe another way, in this verse, we see the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. This life that we live in the flesh is going to be met with all manner of difficulties and sorrows and trials and ups and downs and distractions. Are you living in this flesh in active, diligent, seeking faith in the Son of God? And so you have this conflict of the Christian life. Let's just think about prayer. You know, this comes from a conversation I had with somebody this week, that in your mind, you know the reality that you can come to God with anything at any time. We have just utter freedom as God's children to come with every little, 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 little thing that you'd like to bring to him without any doubt that he's glad to hear you. Do you believe that? Like you could, if there was a test and there was a test question of what you can pray for and, you know, you had like five choices and A, B, C, D, E, and F was all the above. And A, B, C, D, and E were all manner of big and little things and you would check F because there's nothing you can't ask for at any time. With any frequency. Because God is that gracious in accepting you. You're totally free. And yet, don't you constantly wrestle within yourself, why do I ask for such petty things? Can I bring this to him? I mean, this is not near as big as what so-and-so is dealing with. Why would I even care about this? And you have all this kind of, Doubt and fear and, and then I, you think like, what I did this, is he even gonna listen? Is that you? So you can answer the test question right, but when it actually comes to praying, if you pray, you're filled with all kinds of doubts and worries and, did I do it right? Did I ask for the right thing in the right way and the right amount and, right? So you're all twisted into Bavarian pretzel knots without salt. And what's the solution to this 
life. Because that's your life, right? Faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You just tell yourself to shut up and pray. That, that, that's what's going on here. And, and, and it's not how great your faith is. When you read that line, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The emphasis isn't on the faith. <laughs> it's on the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You don't look at your faith and go, oh, I think it's of sufficient quality today. And, and it, it, it has a little impurity, but not enough, so I can pray. No, no, you, you look at the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, and then you pray. And so this is the Christian life. It's a life to be lived. It's full of this inconsistency of, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live in this body. And the only way forward is Jesus. And I think, I fear that you're just content with not really knowing what that means. And not really entering into the fullness of what that is for you. And you're just content to remain in your kind of half-hearted, worried, doubtful, little, infrequent praying. When you have access with boldness to the throne of God because of Christ and your connection with him. Are you following me here? Verse 20 is the key to a Christian life. It's life. And so the main reality here again is when, okay, let's do it this way. When were the apostles saved? Excluding Paul, because that one's pretty clear. When were Matthew and Mark and John and James and the song, when, when, when did they become Christian? You know, was it when Jesus called them at the beginning of his ministry? Was it somewhere along the way, like when Peter said that you are the son of God? Was it when they saw him raised from the dead? Was it in Acts 2 when the Spirit came upon them? When were they saved? What does that have to do with this? I think sometimes we reduce our Christian life down to pointing to a little moment when we made a decision. And we don't realize it's a life. We don't realize that our salvation isn't a moment, it's a life. And when did that life begin? When did it begin? You know, the Bible gives lots of answers to that question. It's not one. One of the answers it began, it gives is when Christ died. 2,000 years ago, when he hung on the cross and died, you died with him. He knew you. He took your sins there. Your eternal salvation was secured there. And, and that's to tell you that it's about him. It ain't about you. It's not about your goodness, your worth, your consistency. It's about Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Does that mean that Christ is constantly being crucified when anybody becomes a Christian? No, he died once for all. When he died, we died with him. He took us down with him. So, so your life in him is secure in the midst of this. But let's look at here who Christ is. 
Luther, in his commentary, which I can't commend again to you high enough, he, he says something like, just see Christ here as he is defined. Because Luther knows, like you and I know, that our thoughts of who Jesus is aren't often as glorious and full as of who he actually is. We can think of him very severely sometimes. We think he's going to be really hard on us all the time. He's got a crazy high exacting standard that we can never measure up to. Or maybe we think he's a teeny tiny little Jesus that can hang on a necklace around our neck and if we kiss it every once in a while, he'll you know, maybe allow us to get home safely in the snow or something. So who is he here? That last line, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Son of God, he is eternally glorious and powerful and wise. There's none greater. There's none greater. You know that though, right? You know that he's always existed. He doesn't have a beginning. He'll have no end. You, you know that there is nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he can't do. That all of the angels, these glorious beings, fall down before him because he's so amazing. All of the stars come out every night just because of him and the power of his word. He just has to say things and they exist. That he's so powerful, he can go into death by dying and walk out of it. <laughs> and it's that one who loved you and gave himself for you. So that's the difficulty here, isn't it? We can believe he is the son of God, high and exalted, but we find it impossible to believe that he loved There is a arrogant strain of Christians, particularly Reformed Christians, who struggle with the me there. Because we live in an individualistic world that sings Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs and make it so sentimental that it's hard to stomach without vomiting it out. And so any focus on the individual is reacted against by trying to keep it plural, corporate. But don't be wiser than God. Jesus loved me. Jesus, the Son of God, the all-powerful, eternal being, the object of all worship, of all the angels and all creation, gave himself for us. True. There's benefit to the entire world in Jesus' death. True. But he gave himself for, what pronoun is here? Me. Singular. Personal. Me. Me. This isn't the normal way we think of him. He's severe. He's a judge. He does love in general. We find it darn near impossible to believe that that being would love me and give himself for me. 
He did. He did. He loved you, and he himself freely, under no compulsion, not because he owed you anything, not even because of you, but just because he loved you, he chose you, and he gave himself for you, singular, you. Mercy's up here playing a guitar. Jesus loved mercy and gave himself for mercy. This is the Christian, this is the way to live this miserable life. Believing that, that that's the truest thing that's true. That there's nothing truer than that truth for you. And it's not a truism, it's not a myth. It's real. The Son of God became a person in order to love you and die for you so that you can be alive to his Father who is the glorious of all glories, the pleasure of all pleasures, so you could have him. He was willing to do that because that's love, that he could get you to him. Calvin, in applying this, says that if we intend to enjoy the grace that is contained in this verse, we must utterly give up any fond opinion of our merits. For men are deceived by bearing in themselves, by bearing themselves in hand, that there, there is ever somewhat of value in them. That is, when we look at ourselves, we view ourselves as so valuable that Jesus would do this for us. To be short, they cannot find in their hearts to come as poor beggars before God, but will always bring some present with them. When Jesus met people in the Bible, I mean, in, in life, when he was on earth, what were they like? When he, when he would do things for them, when he would love them, when he would care for them, what were they like? Did they have anything to give him? Did they have anything to trade or parlay with him? They were just blind beggars. Jesus, have mercy on me. Shut up, leave him alone. Jesus, have mercy. Shut up, leave him alone. You're not going to. Jesus, have mercy on me. He's got nothing to give Jesus. Nothing. Zero. No present, no ability, no talent. That's what you see in this verse. We're just beggars. Therefore, St. Paul shows us that there is no other means for us to receive life at our Lord Jesus Christ's hand and to be made partakers of his death and resurrection so to attain the heritage of heaven by his means than to be utterly void of all foolish high opinions of yourself. The world thinks this. Oh, as for me, I have some virtue in me. I have some promise in me. I cannot lay that down. I cannot cast it away. But we must. We must lay it all down. Cast it quite away. For until we have forgotten our own deserts, our own goodness, surely we shall never be able to conceive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you then come to him? Let us then come utterly empty. Now be careful here. Verse 20 has sometimes been misapplied to think that the secret to the Christian life is some kind of mystical monkism where you just have to detach yourself. You just have to give it all over to God. 
You have to let go and let God. If you can just not feel anything anymore and not think about things anymore and that that's what you think is happening here. That isn't what's happening here. Verse 20 is an MMA cage fight. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you in this life with this body. It's work. It's effort. It's sweat. It's getting up earlier to read this verse again and ask God for grace to believe it. It it isn't a detached, ethereal, only spiritual, disconnected from all pleasure and pain and thought and work and planning. Not at all. There's a reason that men don't go to church anymore. It's because that's what's taught. And men want work. We want action. We want to do something. This verse is all about doing something. You got a life to live, brothers. You got a a devil to kick, mainly within you. You got a wife and children to protect and provide for and Teach them to love the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you and live in such a way that they see it in you. And they ain't going to want to follow a womanish man who folds his legs and puts his fingers like this and says, um, all day long, tries to detach from reality. They want somebody who loves Jesus in their body, with their guts. That's what's going on in this verse. But it's humility. It's to lose dignity to love him. It's to realize that you have no help or hope in this world except for Jesus. That you are a poor beggar, but that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. And that you want him more than you want anything else so that all of the things are in their proper place, that you're grateful for them, that you work hard for them, but that it is all about Jesus. Because he's the only one who loved you and gave himself for you. There's none other. There's none other. Not your shop with all your tools. They can't love you and give itself for you. Not your skill in the kitchen. Not your skill with the sewing needle. Not your snowmobile and sled. Not all the Facebook posts and likes. Only Jesus. It's only him. And so... You have a life to live. And that life is lived connected to knowing, growing in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. What, what can't you do then? What can't you endure then? What can't you get through then? Who can't you serve and give yourself for then? What sin can't you put away then if that's true? What can't you deny yourself here because you have him then? Because he loved you and gave him himself for you, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are too often content to live with the little grace you've given, which we are grateful for. But God, help us to feed more often, more regularly on the bread of heaven. Help us to drink more deeply of the pleasures of the rivers of your grace. Help us be content with things of the world, but discontent with our believing and trusting in your Son who loved us and gave himself for us.
Keep us from making the error of detaching ourselves from all feeling, all doing. And yet be very diligent to make use of what you've given us to know your son more. And please help us to know him more. Help us to know him as he's revealed here in this verse. To bank on it. To take it home with us. To tell it to others. And so God, make it to be our life. We praise you for your son. Thank you that he is ours. Thank you that he's even here now by his spirit. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, the charge deals with your death. It isn't a happy thought necessarily, but I wonder if you would take the time this week to consider that one day you'll be on a bed, maybe, or driving in a car, but and the end will be near, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. The doctors have given up hope. Hospice is there. People are near, and you're struggling for breath, and the end is near. We should think on that. We should consider that. Young people, this is reality for you. It could happen to you at any moment. What will be your help then? Will it be a wishful thought that it'll probably be okay? That will not be enough. Will it be that my parents loved Jesus and I went to a pretty good church? That will not be enough. Will it be that in the scales of God's justice, you kind of hope that the positive side is at least equal to or maybe even outweighs the negative side? That's a lie. It's just Jesus. And it's that you know that you love him and that your hope is in him. And that's because he first loved you and gave himself for you. And so that's the charge. Think on your death. Think on the end. Put your hope in Jesus and then repeat and repeat and repeat. May the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge fill you by the Spirit so that you may know Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you can ask or think according to the power that is at work within you. To him be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.